Yes, two people coming to the platform. Paul and I are going to team preach today. You ready? I have to turn my mic on. And this yes, is a, I am ready. <laughs> this is going to be fun. We've enjoyed putting it together as we start today looking at the church, I believe, as the creed says, in the Holy Catholic Church. Today we're actually going to use the Nicene Creed. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. These four statements beautifully summarize the full doctrine of the church. So I think Paul and I have uh, different perspectives, backgrounds, and experiences that are going to help us. Paul, working with InterVarsity, is what we call parachurch. Mm -hmm. Paul spent a career talking to unchurched students about Jesus and about the church. As a pastor, I have an insider perspective. I was raised Protestant. Paul was raised Catholic. Paul's young. I'm experienced. I'm good looking. Paul's also good looking, mm-hmm. so I guess in that sense that is. But I think that together it's going to be better than what we might share separately. And we're going to start in John chapter 17. Christ's pastoral prayers. He prays for not only his current followers, but for you and me. He prays for the church. John chapter 17, we're going to read the whole chapter. And in this chapter, you find all four of what we refer to as these classic marks of the church that Jesus said he was going to build. Let's begin at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming now to you. But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. 
My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may be in them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this prayer. Thank you for this window into your heart for us. Thank you before, long before any of us were even born, you prayed for us. You are praying for us now, Lord, and we join with you. We pray that today as a church we would learn more and more what it means to be your people, to call us deeper into your church, into your body that you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Tom and I do have different church experiences growing up. We'll share a little bit about them to start off. So like he said, like many Massachusetts kids, I was brought up in the Roman Catholic Church along with my large extended family. It's a long story that I won't tell you, but uh, in, in a word, it was mixed. There were some really wonderful people along the way who pointed me to Jesus, and I was quite drawn to Jesus as a young person. But the church, my experience of church, the institution, the structure of it was, was difficult for me in a number of ways. And I struggled to connect with Jesus through the institutional body of the church. And, and meanwhile, my whole religious experience was a Roman Catholic one. I was vaguely aware that these things called Protestants existed. I'd heard the word. I knew there were other people out there who believed in Jesus, who called themselves Christians, but didn't have a whole lot of interaction with them until I got to college, uh, joined an intervarsity fellowship on my campus, and I met some really amazing Protestants, largely. Uh, my future wife, Liz, was one of them, and uh, I was quite drawn to this group of people. I, I had a dynamic experience of Jesus in that group, found it really powerful. I thought their lives were very compelling, and so I just jumped ship completely, and uh, sorry, mom and dad, you know, I'm not doing this anymore, and it was interesting. I had a, a very idealistic picture of Protestants at that point. I just thought they were all awesome. I thought they were all perfect. I thought any Protestant church must surely just be the most wonderful place on earth, and that was until the very first Protestant church that I was a part of had a disgusting <laughs> split with some of the, the worst unchristian-like behavior that you could ever imagine. So you know, I walked on from there, realized, okay, so it doesn't matter necessarily what the institutional church looks like. The people are not perfect. There are followers of Jesus uh, genuinely there and, and others who, who maybe aren't. Yeah. So my experience was Protestant. It had nothing to do with Catholics. Um, that was the church we had left during the Reformation. And so my experience was not of a single church, but a lot of little denominations it was pretty messy. I remember my dad um, and our family moved out to Niles, Ohio, and we were part of a Baptist church there, and it was the original. It was the first Baptist church, and I kept driving by this other church called Faith Baptist Church, 
on our way to First Baptist. And so finally I asked, I said, what's Faith Baptist? And he said, well, that was the first split from First Baptist. And then outside of town, there was another church called Fellowship Baptist, and that was the group that split off from First and Faith because they were tired of all the infighting, and they were going to be the church that had fellowship. And none of those churches had anything to do with each other, even though they held the same gospel, held the same traditions. It was messy. I, I heard the story of a guy who uh, was stranded on a desert island, and when they finally found him, there were three buildings. The first was his home, and so they came to this one building and said, well, what's this? He says, well, that's my church. And they said, well, what's that, what's that broken down building over there? He says, well, that was my first church. I left that 10 years ago. <laughs> the church looks much messier than this beautiful picture. What has happened to us that who we are today is so fragmented, so broken, so messy? What Jesus prayed for was such a beautiful thing, 12,000 denominations in the U.S. alone. 34,000 globally. Conflict, dysfunctionality, choosing to separate rather than work through and make peace with one another. It's a, it's a very sad thing. And we're not the only ones to have struggled with that. Augustine struggled with it. He saw a church that even though it was a single structure was not at all representative of this priestly prayer and the marks of its own creeds. So he came up with this concept that we're going to wrestle with today called the invisible and the visible church. There's the visible church, that's what man sees. It's largely man-made. Our attempt to take this spiritual entity and to give structure to it, in which we can experience community, do the things that we think Christians do, out of which we can do the mission, whatever we perceive that mission to be, hold each other accountable, that's the visible church. That visible church is what the world sees as well, but it's not the real church, that's the invisible church. The invisible church is the one that the Holy Spirit births that actually, right now, is one holy Catholic and apostolic because that church is the church that God sees, the church of all blood-bought children of God that is made into the bride of Christ by the accomplished and sustaining work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Calvin would later say the mission of the visible church is to make the invisible church visible. All right, so we're going to talk about what it looks like to make the invisible church visible. The way we're going to walk through things, you can follow through in the notes in your, in your bulletin. We're going to just take each of these four characteristics of the church, one holy Catholic and apostolic, and for each of them, we're going to look back at our main text, John 17, to see where we, where we find it there. And for each of them, we're going to have a central image. There's a lot of different images and metaphors in Scripture to describe the church, so we're going to look at four of them, one for each of the, the four markers. And then we're also going to just talk a little bit about what it might mean to make the invisible church visible in these ways. So we'll start with the first. The church is one. One church. We see this in Jesus' prayer. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then jumping down, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, 
so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So we see here Jesus' heart that we be one, his call to oneness and a call to complete unity. There's one church and it seems like the most appropriate biblical metaphor for this truth is that of the body of Christ. It's a metaphor in scripture that comes up multiple times that the church is the body of Christ. And there's just one. It's a singular. There aren't bodies of Christ, multiple bodies of Christ. There is one, one body, and it's called to complete unity, to complete oneness. I'll talk a little bit about what unity isn't and what it is, uh, looking a little bit at this image of the body. So again, there's one body. That's the invisible church, the invisible reality. It's not something we have to create or make of our own doing as if we have to establish or make one body. There is one body. And we live that out. So what unity is not, unity is not all-inclusiveness. It's not all-inclusiveness. It's not just tolerance or coexistence or coming together in a way where we suspend our beliefs or don't really believe anything with conviction or passion for the sake of not making anybody uncomfortable. Unity is not that. So look with me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, is one area in which this image of the body is spelled out. And Paul says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So again, it's emphasized here there is one body, and this body actually believes something. It's united around the gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It's not just unity and a coming together and whatever you want to believe is fine and we'll just all happily coexist. It's unity around conviction. It's unity around truth. It's unity around the gospel. That's the kind of unity that Jesus was praying for. I've seen both of these play out in my work on campus. There's a campus version of, of unity and, and oneness, which really is kind of a, let's just bring everybody together and don't believe anything too strongly, or you might make somebody upset, you might offend. Um, at the end of the day, that version of unity is pretty empty and, and ends up being fairly shallow because basically you don't end up believing much of anything at all. We look for a lowest common denominator and people check their most passionate convictions at the door for the sake of not offending anybody, but then you're left with really very little of substance. And so that version of unity is a pretty empty and shallow version of unity. As opposed to the kind of unity I've experienced as an intervarsity staff worker, we are an interdenominational ministry devoted to reaching college students with the gospel. And there are people I work with who are of different denominations than I am. We don't all agree on every single secondary doctrine, but we do agree on the core truths of the gospel that Paul lays out here. We do unite in a passionate pursuit of the gospel and desire to get that gospel to college students. And that is, produces unity, but it's unity around a core set of convictions, around the gospel. So unity is not just all-inclusiveness, but unity around the truth of the gospel. Another thing unity is not is uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. So let's look quickly. I'll just allude to it. There's a long chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is another place where the image of the body is really spelled out, really filled out. Uh, in verse 12, 
Paul says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So there is one body, but it has many members, different members with different functions, members that look different from one another, coming together to form this one body, each playing its part. And Paul goes on to describe what this looks like at length in the rest of this chapter. So there's one body, but there's many members. And that's a good thing. You know, denominations in and of themselves are not a bad thing. A lot of them have formed under messy circumstances. Uh, But the fact that there are denominations, the fact that there are multiple different expressions of the Christian church in the world is not necessarily a bad thing because the gospel is is translatable to every people in every culture. And so it takes many different expressions and forms of the church to reach every people. So there's one body but many members. It's when those members work together, it's when those members unite around the cause of the gospel that we make the invisible church visible. So there's one body of Christ in Worcester, for example. We are, the Journey Community Church is one member of that body, but we're not the whole body. All the different members of the church in Worcester make up part of that one body. So anytime these members unite around the cause of the gospel, we make the invisible church visible. So there have been a number of citywide prayer gatherings that Lou has been helping to spearhead where different leaders come together and pray for the gospel to go forth in our city that makes the invisible church a little bit more visible. Anytime the Journey Community Church partners with InterVarsity to reach college students with the gospel or partners with Straight Ahead Ministries to reach at-risk youth with the gospel, anytime our members partner with Christian Veterinary Association to reach people overseas with the gospel, that's different members of the body uniting around the cause of the gospel. That's the kind of oneness Jesus was talking about, and that makes the invisible church a little more visible in our world. Amen. Yeah, I love that. This week, in fact, I was, um, I was part of a prayer gathering. You hear us talk a lot about being so excited. Paul talks about it, Liz. We feel like God's at work in the city in a really special way, and the prayer movement is one of the indicators of that, and maybe one of the causes of it, because great awakenings only occur on the back end of a concerted prayer movement. But this week, I prayed with about 20 people, lay people and pastors, ethnically diverse, denominationally diverse, in the mayor's office. Once a month, there's a group of us meeting there and praying. And the prayer is powerful. I contrast that with um, growing up watching the World Council of Churches. They wanted unity at the cost of the gospel. They said, we're going to treat Scripture lightly. We're going to talk less about sin and grace. That is not unity. That's not the oneness that Paul's talking about. But when we pray together in that place, I get really excited. I was so thrilled to be a part of that experience because I'm part of one church in this city. Church isn't just one, it's holy. The word holy means set apart. Where we first see it is in verse six when Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. In this priestly prayer, there is this interesting play between saying you have given me this body out of the world, but then he says, I'm not taking them out of the world. They're in the world. So as we look at what it means to be in the world, we have to understand what it means to be holy. 
Did you know the Greek word for church, ekklesia, literally means the called out people of God? The biblical metaphor that speaks about this mark of the church is one that Peter uses, that we are a chosen people. So just turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter invokes this metaphor. In fact, he invokes the nation of Israel, the whole history, the calling out of the nation of Israel as a unique people, some of the institutions and roles of the nation of Israel. And what he helps us understand is that all was a foreshadowing of the church. Verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. All that flows out of this idea. We are now the chosen people of God. The Greek word for people is genos, and it means race, or listen, ethnicity. Now think about this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. And that word talks about a new type of human that has never before existed. What does it look like when all of these new creations come together? Well, they're a new type of humanity, a whole new type of ethnicity. Now think about the beauty of that. We are neither Jew nor Gentile or Samaritan, slave or free, male and female, and yet in Christ, with all that incredible diversity, which is what makes it so interesting and not boring, if everybody was like me, it would be really boring, right? Yeah, thank you, David, (laughs) right? And if everybody was like you, it would be miserably boring. We become an ethnic group, think about that, a spiritual ethnic group that is marked by God's calling us out from the rest of humanity. It's a fantastic picture. That's what it means that we're holy. We are set apart. Now, let's play this out. In John 17, keep a thumb on 1 Peter 2 and go back with me to John 17. Look at how Jesus refers to these people, that we are both in the world and yet we are not of the world. This is what he says. My prayer, verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil world, the evil one. That's interesting. You notice my my mistake right there. I, I actually said you protect them from the evil world. That's not what it says. But that's often the way we think about it. We think Jesus' concern is that we are going to be tainted by the world. And sometimes groups so separate themselves in the name of holiness that they pull themselves out of the world. In 1 Peter 2, we are instructed as this chosen people to live such good lives, what's the word? Among the pagans. And pagans simply meant the culture around them. It was actually religiously a pagan world. Peter's saying, live your lives among. That Greek word among means in relationship with. It conjures the ideas in Jeremiah 29 when the people of Israel were 
in Babylon and they were struggling with what role they should play in Babylon. And there were prophets who were saying to them, keep yourself outside. You're a holy people. Keep yourself outside and wait for God to deliver. And we have that mentality in the church today. We think the world's evil. It's getting worse and worse. Jesus is going to come soon. So just stay away. Jeremiah was the true voice of God who wrote to them and said, no, that's not it. Settle in. Move into Babylon. Build houses. Marry. Go into business. Work for the good of the city. Because when God prospers the city, he prospers you. But he also says, stay sanctified. And this is the picture that Jesus has of us. So to be holy is not to be separated, but to be set apart while in relationship with the world. Let me be clear. Jesus' prayer wasn't for God to protect us from the world. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the most famous verse in all the Bible reminds us that God loves the world. He loves the world so much, he sent his son into that world. God doesn't need to protect us from the world. He needs to protect us from the evil one, the prince of this world, the the ruler of this world, because we're on a mission. The gates of hell are not to prevail against us. We are set apart to God, and then we are set apart for the work of God. And the word sanctify that Jesus uses in John 17 means to make holy. How are we made holy? How do we become a holy people? He says, sanctify them by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. So the way we are a holy people is to be committed, wholly committed to letting the word of God thrive in our lives, letting it transform the spiritual DNA of our souls as the Holy Spirit brings it to bear in our lives. But that results in mission. First Peter 2, we are a holy people that we may declare the praises of God. And the result as we live that out among the world, in relationship with the world, is that they become worshipers too. Other people watch this holy ethnicity, this ethnicity of grace. They watch it as we live among them. And in the end, they become worshipers of God too. I love that thought. That's a great word. I I feel like oftentimes Christians, we spend a lot of time complaining or fretting the ways that our culture is not Christian friendly or not making it easy for us to live out our Christian faith when in fact Jesus never promised that it would be. So the energy we spend wishing it weren't so or complaining that that's the way it is, that's fighting the wrong battle. And then that energy could really be going towards the pursuit of the sanctified missional life that Jesus has really called us to in the midst of the world. Moving on, The church is also not just one holy, but it is Catholic. This is a beautiful word, Catholic. It's true definition, a beautiful word. It means universal, without barriers, without boundaries, Mm -hmm. without borders. We see it in John 17, 20. Jesus prays, also for those who will believe in me through their message. This church transcends time. It's that Catholic. Jesus was praying for his current disciples who were with him at the moment, but also for us now and believers in the 3rd and 8th and 11th and 17th centuries and everywhere in between. This Catholic church transcends time and it transcends every other 
type of barrier or border, cultural, race, national, whatever it may be. The biblical image we want to explore with this is that of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes Jesus preparing the church, preparing his bride. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ is preparing his church, preparing us like a bride, preparing us from every era, from every nation, from every race, ethnicity, and culture on the face of the earth. Now, Catholic has taken on a little bit of a different meaning, like when I was a kid and I would say, I'm Catholic or my family's Catholic. It's kind of shorthand for I'm part of the Roman Catholic Church. But believers were using the term Catholic long before the Roman Catholic Church ever became a a thing. They were saying it in the Apostles' Creed as early as the, the early second century, one holy Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't really founded until the 4th century after the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and Christianity then became the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And it took on the name Catholic as it kind of consolidated all churches within the Roman Empire to form one church that was called Catholic. And it's a little bit of a misnomer in the way that American sports teams call themselves world champions, like the Red Sox won the World Series last year, or whoever wins the NBA title calls themselves the world champions. (laughs) Um, It's kind of a misapplication of the word world. All the teams are in North America. Uh, But somehow we figure (laughs) out, well, if you you win the American League, you must be a world champion. Well, much as they figured, I guess, you know, if you're the Church of the Roman Empire, it's the Catholic Church, because, you know, what else is there? Well, there was plenty, actually. Even at the time of Constantine, there were plenty of churches, church bodies outside of the purview of the Roman Empire. There were believers by that time of thriving Christian community in India and in Egypt and in Ethiopia and other parts of Asia and Africa and Eastern Europe. So even, even in the fourth century, the Roman Catholic Church wasn't truly Catholic. There were other believers flourishing in other parts of the world that had all been traced back to the original apostles' message. But Jesus is preparing a truly Catholic church. We don't need to shy away from the word because we don't like it, but some of us may feel that way. We need to reclaim the word. Mm. It's a beautiful word. It's huge. You know, the Roman Catholic Church is big and it's pervasive and it's all over the world, but Jesus' body is Catholic. It transcends time, transcends cultures, nations, every group, and he's preparing us, calling us out from every place where we are and every place where we live. And then this is where we're all going to end up. Read this with me. This is kind of the end of the story once Jesus has fully prepared his bride. Let's read this together. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's Catholic. (laughs) Believers from every era, every age, every language, tribe and ethnicity and every culture worshiping Jesus, proclaiming the salvation found in Jesus that people have been finding all over the world for a long, long time, all coming together. That's Catholic. Now, that's the 
invisible church that will be visible one day. It's really hard to make this visible in our day and age because it transcends time, transcends everything. But any time believers come together across generations and across cultures in oneness around the gospel, we are making the invisible church a little more visible. Part of our vision here at The Journey is an ethnically diverse, intergenerational family of believers. And those aren't just nice ideas that we thought would be cool, but the more we interact across generations and across cultures, the better we reflect the invisible church in this world where we're living. Amen. 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 Any questions? (laughs) So the fourth mark is apostolic. Uh, The Roman church uses this term, as does the Orthodox church, of apostolic succession. They think apostolicity is passing on the authority, especially of Peter, to the next person who's going to head up the church, and then the bishops under them. But that isn't what the framers of these creeds meant when they spoke about apostolic. The the word apostle itself simply means messenger. There were those who were the original apostles. They were the ones that had the title apostle, and that was a specific role and title for a specific era, those that were used by God to launch the church upon whose teaching the church is built. There were 12 of them. And then there was Paul. When you want to understand what that title, that capital A, apostle is, understand how Paul defends his own apostleship. It's about having been with Jesus, personally commissioned by Jesus, receiving direct teaching and revelation from Jesus so that when you spoke, you were speaking for Jesus. That role no longer exists today, but the work, the apostolic ministry continues. That's in Ephesians 4. When Paul talks about the church, it said God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers to equip the saints to the work of ministry. He's talking about present tense work. There is a ministry of apostleship that we are to carry on, and in that sense, we are apostolic. So what is that ministry? Well, here's how I'm going to define it for you. To be apostolic means to be committed to the message and the mission of Jesus and the apostles. If apostle means messenger, then messenger denotes two important things. One is a message, and two is a mission to bring that message someplace. So that's what we're speaking of. In John 17, we see it in verse seven. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from me, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Christ passed on a very specific message to them, which we understand is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. And then he says in verse 18, I am sending them as you sent me into the world, I am going to send them into the world. So that's the idea in Jesus' prayer of what it means to be apostolic. The biblical metaphor is a spiritual house. Let me just read for you from Ephesians as we start winding up here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles, there's the apostolic, and prophets with Christ Jesus himself 
as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This building, this new temple in which God dwells, known as the church, is built on the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, but also on Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone. Did you know that Hebrews 3 refers to Jesus as the ultimate apostle? He is the most faithful apostle, the writer of Hebrews says. So when we talk ultimately about being apostolic, we're saying we are faithful and committed to that mission that was Jesus and the message of redemption. That's what it means to be an apostolic church. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's interesting as you look at these four statements, I believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. It's interesting how, if we do it right, it's all visible. It's all meant to be visible. In terms of implications, what we need to be thinking about is how can we be this invisible church? How can we make it visible in three ways? In the journey itself, And a lot of how we've shaped ourselves to be here at the journey is rooted in trying to be this kind of church. Hopefully some of you have recognized how when we describe what we want to be, you you see how we're shaped and influenced by a lot of this, but not just here, but in Worcester. How do we bring the invisible church visible in Worcester and even more so around the world? So uh, Paul's going to share his thoughts a little bit on how to land that. Yeah, the first thing to live out being a part of this one holy Catholic apostolic church is really own the fact that that's who we are. That's what we're a part of. In our individualistic society, it's easy to just think of our faith as me and Jesus or my own personal relationship with God, but it's never just that. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus, you are part of this church, like it or not, and you better own it. You need to own it. It begins by a commitment to a local body, to a community, to this church perhaps, and it fans out from there by looking to partner with other members of Christ's body in the city and across the world. But we're part of it. If we just want to have our own walk with God or if we just want to relate to the people that are around us that we're comfortable with, we probably won't actually like heaven very much. It's going to be really, really crowded there, really full of all kinds of people from all ages and all cultures, people who are different from us, who speak different languages from us, who maybe even vote a little differently than we do. We've got... No. It's true. Really? And we've got to own we're part of the body, and if we're not reconciled to some part of the body, we need to pursue that reconciliation. That's ultimately where Jesus is taking us, to be one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I think that's good. I think it it calls us to practice peacemaking within the body. We allow our dysfunctionality to be how the world sees us. And we can err on the side of holding so precious our particular views on certain things that we forget that we are first called to come together around one Lord, one Savior, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all, and through all. I think it's so important that you recognize our vision here is that we are just part of one church in Worcester. And that's gonna get uncomfortable for some of you who wanna be in a homogeneous church where everybody thinks the way you do. And 
practices worship the way you do and their particular beliefs on the secondary issues match yours, you're missing out personally on a deeper and greater experience with the true bride of Christ by trying to stay inside those circles. Now, we stay united around those core issues. I think that's critical. We need to make sure that part of being set apart and holy is to recognize what it is that brings us together and never setting that aside. But when we find people who share those things, embracing them fully, I think that's really critical as well. What else comes to mind for you? That's all. I got one more thing. A lot of us come from all sorts of experiences with churches. A lot of us in this room have been hurt by churches. And I want to first say God bless you for hanging in there, finding another church, for, for coming back in, for trusting frail people. You know, I'm, I'm imperfect. We're imperfect people. And that's where grace rules. And I want to affirm you for coming back in. But ultimately, as wounded as we are, as inconsistent, as, as disenfranchised as we can become about the visible church, the one thing that we need to remember, Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church. Gave himself up for her. We are called to love that church. We are that church. But we are called to love that church. To me, the, the high point here is this picture that we are being called out as the bride of Christ, that Christ gave himself up for his church so that we could be purified, be without any, any spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. That's what God is doing. Even though on the outside, even though in the visible world, the church looks a mess, Christ is building that church, and it's glorious. And our calling is to allow that church to emerge here and to become visible, not only in how we live our lives, but in how we engage with other churches across the city and around the world. We need to love the church that Jesus loves, not just our particular flavor of it. And if we can get there, then we can be part of this great mission of making this glorious and visible, this miraculous ethnicity of grace known to the world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of sharing these ideas, and we want to try to explain the doctrine behind it, but ultimately, we want to be moved by what moves you. We recognize that the church is what you saw when you, for the joy set before you, endured the cross. It wasn't just me. We make it so personalized. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for his church. He died for the elect. He died for those who would come to him. He envisioned this bride that would be one, united around the gospel, that would be holy, set apart for God, before and engaged with the world, glorifying God so that others are drawn to be worshipers of you. Being Catholic, recognizing that no single moment in time represents this bride, but you are building a church that is universal and without borders, and we are someday going to be all together around the throne, the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we long for that day. But ultimately, all of that drives us into mission. We have an apostolic calling to that message and that mission. Father, may we, at the journey, may we as individuals love that church. May we become that church, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.